morning. Prithvi, can you hear me? Or you don't want to hear me? All right. Uh, thank you, Jabal, for uh, the reading of the word and for praying for me. We will continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, as was clear from the reading of the text, it is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Is that better? All right. Okay. So, well, I didn't have that on my presentation. Okay. Uh, there is a news agency called Newser, and uh, they were talking about a Dutch cyclist by the name of Martin de Jong. Martin de Jong, in the year 2014, went as a cyclist around the world, and something interesting happened as he booked tickets on two different flights. He booked his tickets on the doomed Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, and also on the flight that went missing for years, which is MH370. Both of them Malaysian Airlines flights. And as he booked his uh, tickets on both those flights, both of which went down, he changed his flight in the last minute. And ABC News reports that this person, the Dutch cyclist, for some fortune that he had is what ABC News calls it, had the uh, fortune again to change his flights last minute, both of which went down. Like the rest of us, this man lives ignorant of his time to die. I wonder if he's thinking about his death right now. None of us knows the right time for anything, you know, when you look at things, we don't know when to change our flights. We don't know when to sell. We don't know when to buy stuff or how long to wait. We all make our decisions, even as Christians, based on incomplete information. This morning, as you sit here waiting for God to speak to you, uh, may I ask you a few questions to begin with? What are you waiting for this morning? Or what have you been waiting for this morning? Have you been praying for something that God has asked you to wait for? Are you waiting for someone you care about to come to Christ? Or are you waiting for God to open a door for you, probably a job, probably to move to a different city or to a different country or to get married or to have a baby? Or a new opportunity as well. How many of you can think of something right now that you've been waiting for? And if you've been waiting for something, would you have that at the back of your minds as you listen to God's word this morning? So the questions come up. The questions are, how do you live when you don't know God's perfect timing? How do you live when you don't know God's perfect timing? Or better, is there anything I need to understand to rest in God's perfect timing? Is there anything I need to understand from the word, particularly from this passage, for me to rest in God's perfect timing? You know, as we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been seeing wisdom on life through the, li uh, through the life of Solomon and his pursuits. As Solomon has been pursuing a lot of things, he comes to the conclusion that it's all vanity. It's meaninglessness. It's a chasing after the wind. And when we talk about time here, 
and come, try to come, uh, come to grips with what Solomon is saying about time, we might be tempted to think that Solomon is also saying something negative about time, that it's also vanity. What might he say about time is what we need to look at for this morning's passage. So today's passage will reveal to us three things we need to understand. Three things we need to understand to rest in God's perfect timing. To rest in God's perfect timing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. So here it is, the outline, so we'll go step by step. So in verses 1 through 8, you will see that God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. There is a purpose to life because God oversees the seasons of our life. There's a purpose to life because God oversees all the seasons of our life. How does God rule over time? Solomon talks about it by detailing two things here. Let's go step by step. Firstly, Solomon says, God appointed a time for every activity. Verse 1. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Let me read that once again for you. For everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Solomon begins this section with a poem. The first verse that I read for you just now is the heading of the poem, and it summarizes the entire content of the poem. Notice, until now, if you remember, Solomon has been talking about several of his pursuits. And when he talked about his pursuits, he has always mentioned this phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. And I've explained to you what under the sun means. When you lock God out of this system, when you lock God out of this world, In this world of time plus matter plus chance, when there's no revelation from God, Solomon is saying everything is like a chasing after the wind. Everything is vanity. Everything is meaninglessness. And so he has been using the phrase under the sun, under the sun. But all of a sudden, there is some positive thing that happens here. In this phrase, he is using not under the sun, but under heaven. For the first time in this book, Solomon is using the phrase under heaven. So what Solomon is saying here is that everything in this time-bound universe is under the authority of God. Everything in this time-bound universe is under the authority of God. The sovereign God rules over time and everything and every activity that happens in time. And that's why he puts it so beautifully and he says this, for everything there's a season and a time and and for every matter Under heaven, there is a time. Nothing happens outside the will of God. Nothing happens outside the sovereignty of God. God rules over time. God controls time. And God is in control of every activity in your life that happens in time. Secondly, Solomon says, God rules over all our moments and all our days as well. God rules over all our moments and all our days as well. Verses 2 through 8, this is a beautiful poem, one of the best poems ever written in the world, I believe. And even scholars talk about it that way. So to further explain this, Solomon points out four things from this magnificent poem. The preacher's poem emphasizes the scope of God's sovereignty with pairs of related opposites. He talks about pairs of related opposites. You know, in the Hebrew language, there's a figure of speech called merism. Merism means when you talk about two opposites, you're talking about 
the two opposites and everything in between. For example, the Bible uses the phrase from the rising of the sun to its setting, which means you're talking about the beginning of the day to the end of the day and everything in between. And that is called merism. And Solomon uses this figure of speech here and notice how he is going along. And as we meditate on this particular poem that Solomon is writing, he is talking about four things. Please follow along as we go step by step. First thing, Solomon says, God controls the timing of beginnings and endings. God controls the timing of beginnings and endings. Look at verses 2 and 3 very carefully. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. You know, the first part of verse 2 that we just read It refers to human life and its limits. A time to be born. This is the beginning of life. You know, just a couple of months ago, I had a baby by God's grace. That is the beginning of life. There's a time to be born. And then the second part of it, uh, it says there is a time to die as well. There is a beginning and there's an ending to human life. When you look at the second part of verse 2, it refers to plant life there. In agriculture, there's a time to plant, which is the beginning of plant life, and there's a time to pluck what is planted, which is the ending of plant life, or the ending of what was planted. So that is verse 2. Now, when you look at verse 3, it doesn't start with beginnings. It rather starts with endings. There's a time to kill, and then there's a time to heal. Killing here in this context could refer to a legitimate capital punishment. Or it could uh, refer to a holy war. And healing here could refer to being restored to health through medical treatment. Or even a miraculous healing uh, may be something that Solomon could have had in mind. And Solomon here in the second part of verse 3 says, there's a time to break down. It could refer to the destruction of buildings in a war. And uh, building could refer to the consequent reconstruction of buildings as well. Or simply put, it could refer to just about knowing a time when to tear down a building and when to put up a building. But the point here is this, that God controls the beginnings and the endings. God controls the timing of beginnings and endings about everything in this world. God controls our beginning and God controls our ending as well. None of us knows when we'll die. You know, I've read of a couple uh, that has four children. And that couple, whenever they want to fly to any place, they never take the same flight. They could be going to the same destination, but they never take the same flight. So they go to the airport together in the same car. I don't know how they go in the same car, but they go together in the same car, and they take two different flights to that destination. They meet up in their destination and then take a car again and go home. They live in Hungary, by the way. The reason is they say that we don't know when a flight is going to crash. And if the flight is going to crash, I don't want my four children to lose both the parents. And the point that they're trying to make is this is our way of being responsible parents to our children. I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong, but the point is this. The rest of us don't know any more than this couple. The rest of us don't know any more than this couple. I don't know for sure when any flight is going to crash. Or for that matter, when you take Uber to the airport, when that is going to spin out of control. The point here is this. God controls the timing of beginnings and endings. 
God controls the timing of beginnings and endings. Secondly, God controls the timing of emotional highs and lows as well. He controls the timings of emotional highs and lows. Verses 4 and 5. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to moan and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Verse 4 here deals with emotions. There's a time for grief and a time to celebrate is what the verse says. Now, this is given a more concrete expression in the second part of verse 4 as grief manifests itself in mourning and celebration manifests itself in dancing. You see, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance in the second part of verse 4. Verse 5 is very unclear even in the Hebrew language. We can't precisely know what it talks about. But I think it's better to take this verse as referring to clearing a field of stones, which is throwing away, and then gathering stones to build up a building. And then Solomon says there's a time for embracing and there's a time to refrain from embracing as well. You could love your children very much, but you can't always embrace them. There's a time to embrace, there's a time to refrain from embracing. God controls the timing of emotional highs and lows. God controls the timing of emotional highs and lows. Since laughter has a time, and that is controlled by God too, let me share with you something, and please pause for a little chuckle here. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, um, Living on the Ragged Edge, in page number 72, writes about this particular thing. He says this, listen to this very carefully. And by the way, if you're going to laugh for this and chuckle for this, God is in control of that too. He says, I heard about a pastor who left the pastorate after 20 years. He decided to become a funeral director. Somebody asked, why did you do that? He answered, well, I spent about 12 years uh, trying to straighten out John. Is that you, John? He never did get straightened out. I spent 14 months trying to straighten out the marriage of Smiths. It never did get straightened out. I spent three years trying to straighten out Susan, and she never did get straightened out. Now, when I straighten them out as a funeral director, they stay straight. (laughs) There's a time to laugh. The point is, God controls the timing of emotional highs and lows. Thirdly, God controls the timing of possessions and ambitions as well. God controls the timing of possessions and ambitions as well. Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Solomon says that there's a time to seek new possessions in the context and a time to let go of them as well, a time to hold on to possessions and a time to get rid of them as well. Lastly, in this poem, uh, Solomon says, God controls the timing of private and public emotions as well. Private and public emotions as well. Verses 7 and 8. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now the context of verse 7 here, a time to tear and a time to sow, could be that of mourning. A time to tear could refer to tearing of a garment that signifies mourning. And a time to sow could refer to the end of that mourning period when you try to sew that or fix that garment that you've torn during your mourning period. In the same way, being silent and speaking might refer to 
fitting responses to somebody who is mourning. You know when you should remain silent when somebody is mourning. You know when you ought to speak when somebody is mourning. When you read the book of Job, it becomes very, very clear that it's very difficult to know when to speak and when not to speak when somebody is mourning and suffering. Verse 8, deal with the opposites as well. Emotional high, I mean, public emotions and private emotions. There's a time to love. There's a time to hate. There's a time for war. And there's a time for peace as well. God controls the timing of private and public emotions as well. You know, when you look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and listen to me very carefully, please. When you look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's sovereignty over time is perfectly and gloriously displayed from beginning to end in his life. God's sovereignty over time is perfectly and gloriously displayed in how he lived his life on earth. We as Christians need to understand this, that the lordship of Christ over time is not just over major events of history, but it's about everyday events that are happening in your life and in my life too. One of the best ways to avoid life's vanity is by knowing what to do with our time. The way we spend our time is the way we spend our lives. And hear me please, if it is true that our Lord Jesus has perfect timing, then we should trust him to know what is the right time for everything in your life and what is the right time for everything in my life as well. David was able to bless the Lord at all times because he knew whatever time it was, God was still in control. Even when he was going through grief or emotional highs, David was able to bless God because he knew God was in control. Most of us prefer to have control over our lives. Most of us prefer to manage our own agenda, which makes us quick to criticize God's timing. And instead of insisting on keeping our own timetable, I think we must hurry up and trust in God's timetable and trust in God's timing. David said in Psalm 31 verse 14, one of my favorite verses, or one of my favorite uh, lines in this psalm, he says, I trust in you, Lord, my times are in your hand. My times are in your hand, which, by the way, is the title of this morning's sermon. The question is this, are you willing to put your times in God's hand? Are you, am I willing to put my times in God's hand? I don't know what it is that you've been praying about or waiting for, for years maybe, or for months or for days. Only God in his omniscience knows what's going on or what you're thinking about right now as you listen to this sermon this morning. Maybe you've been waiting to get married, or perhaps you've been waiting to get a job, or perhaps you've been wanting to move to a different city or to a different country, or you've been praying for a baby, or you've been trying to successfully complete a course perhaps, or get a promotion. Or some of you may be thinking about ministry and have been praying to get into ministry. I don't know what it is. You know it and God knows it. And I told you, keep that at the back of your mind about what you've been praying about uh, as you listen to this. The point is, may I ask you this morning to resolve right now, not when you get home, but right now, to put your times in the hand of God, understanding that God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time.
God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. Sometime in the 4th century AD, there was a man by the name of Didymus the Blind. This man, Didymus the Blind, used a very vivid example to uh, explain why we should believe that God is in control. He says, he talks about a big sailing vessel where we're all passengers. We're all as Christians uh, are passengers on a big sailing vessel. We've never met the captain, but we know for sure that the ship is being steered in the right course and in the right direction. And he says, God himself in the same way manages the cosmos. Although we don't see him, he looks after it. He is known by his works and the order of his providence. So God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. So in verses 1 through 8, we saw that God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. Then there's a second thing that we need to understand to rest in God's perfect timing. And that is in verses 9 through 11. They say that God has put eternity in man's heart, yet man cannot understand all of it. God has put eternity in man's heart, yet man cannot understand all of it. God has placed a longing in man to know how he and his activities relate to eternity, and yet his eternal plan cannot be understood by man. His eternal plan cannot be understood by man. Solomon expands on this by talking about four things very quickly. Now follow along, please, as we go step by step. First thing, God provides man work to occupy his time. Verses 9 and 10. God provides man work to occupy his time. What gain has a worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon here begins with a rhetorical question in verse 9. He says, what gain has a worker from his toil? Answer, there is no net gain for any worker from his toil from Solomon's perspective. Man's work has no value in and of itself. Man's work or man's toil has no value in and of itself. But in verse 10, Solomon says this, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be, to be busy with. God provides man work to occupy his time. You know, I know of a friend who is extremely wealthy. He didn't earn the wealth. The wealth has been given to him. And so he doesn't work. And often he, I remember once he came and told me that, Revanth, I'm so bored. I want to do something. And then he went and did something very meager just to have something to occupy his time. And here, God says, or Solomon says, God helps us prevent boredom by giving us work. He helps us prevent boredom by giving, by giving us work. Secondly, God has fixed the, ta- the right time for everything. God has fixed the appropriate time for everything. Look at the first part of verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This verse is quoted several times, particularly uh, in weddings. But the right translation would be, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has made everything appropriate in its time. The point is, we don't fix the times and seasons. The Lord does. You don't fix it. I don't fix it. The Lord does. God has put everything where it is. And where he has put everything, it belongs right there. This may not seem true to us, but it is true. And for all of us, who want to be in control of our lives, 
or even think that we are controlling our lives. Solomon wants us to be aware of this fact that God is the one who is ordering our lives and not ourselves. God is the one who is ordering our lives. He is in control of time. God has chosen the right time for everything. And everything is going to happen on his schedule, not your schedule or my schedule. This means that we have to be patient and we have to live by faith and not by sight and just be content with whatever seasons God brings into our lives. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Wait on the Lord, I say. Wait on the Lord. This is easier said than done, but it is the only way to live consistent with reality as a Christian. God has fixed the right time for everything. Thirdly, Solomon says, God has given man a perspective on the past and the future. God has given man a perspective on the past and the future. Look at verse 11b, the second part of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. He has put eternity into man's heart. The problem is that man cannot be content with seasons of life. I just told you that man wants to be in control of the seasons of his life without recognizing that it's God who's in control. In realizing our mortality and the uselessness of our present work and toil, we want to believe there is more. And here Solomon says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. In our hearts, we acknowledge eternity and our minds want to understand it. God has put eternity into man's heart. God gives me time to have a desire for the future. God gives me time to have a desire for the future. He has put eternity into my heart. Now, uh, Don Richardson has written a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Some of you may have read it. Uh, It is... The subtitle says, Startling Evidence of Belief in One True God in Hundreds of Cultures Throughout the World. A brilliant book. He he looks at a survey of different cultures and how they innately believe in the one true God, although they don't know who he is and the gospel needs to be taken there and all of that. So uh, here in this book, he is trying to debunk a theory that says that it is religion that is gone and foisted upon people and cultures the idea of God. Otherwise, people would never have something called the idea of God. But then, around the turn of the century, he says, young anthropologists went to hundreds of cultures and hundreds of uh, people groups expecting to find in primitive cultures what they might be believing in. And they found out that all of them, although they didn't know him or his name, they believed in one God. They believed in monotheism. And that's what this book says. And he talks about people like Santal people from India to the most educated philosophers of ancient Athens. He says that in hundreds of cultures and for centuries, the concept of a supreme God always existed. Solomon says he has put eternity in the hearts of men. He has put eternity in the hearts of men. God has given man a perspective on the past and the future. Fourthly, man cannot fully appreciate the beauty of God's overall plans. Man cannot fully appreciate the beauty of God's overall plans. Look at the last part of verse 11. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man is unable to understand eternity. 
God has given the man the desire for eternity, but he has not given him the ability to understand eternity. And that's why he doesn't understand eternity at all. You know, do you know why children ask questions about meaning of life and eternity and God more than adults? Because God has put in them a desire to know more about eternity, to know, to know more about uh, things that are unknown to them. And yet he has not given them or man the ability to know more of it. Now, what does eternity in their hearts mean? It means that we have a perspective on past and future that animals don't. We have a perspective on past and future that animals don't. Animals live for the moment. They live in the moment. I've never seen a dog that is regretting about what happened yesterday or a monkey that is worried about what it's going to eat tomorrow. They live for the moment. But human beings have been given a perspective about the past and the future as well. And with all of this, man still can't figure out the mystery of life. He still can't figure out the mystery of life. God has put eternity in man's heart, yet man cannot understand all of it. Now let me draw this to the application that I'm trying to bring this to, and uh, that's what the text is driving at as well. There was a merchant in Baghdad. Listen to this carefully, please. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent uh, one of his servants to bribe provisions from the market. And I think this is from Somerset Mom. Uh, so he goes, uh, he, uh, the servant does, he goes to the marketplace and he's buying provisions and all of a sudden he's jostled by someone and he thinks it's a woman. And he turns around to see who that is and he sees that it is death standing and staring in his face. And death is very interested in this particular servant. He is carefully looking and observing, at this, uh, observing this servant. And the servant is startled. He is scared. He runs back without buying all the provisions. He runs to his master, white and trembling. And then the master asks, why didn't you bring all the provisions that I gave you in the list? He says, well, I was jostled by somebody. I thought it was a woman. When I turned around, it was death. And death was staring at me in the face. So I want to do this, master. Give me one of your fastest horses. I want to take one of your fastest animals. I want to ride on that horse and ride as far as possible to Samara, away from Baghdad. He says, that's all right. You can take one of my finest horses. So he takes the horse, one of the finest horses, gets onto the animal, and then he rides as fast as possible to the city of Samara, away from Baghdad. And meanwhile, the master wants to go to the marketplace to find out what's happening. So he goes to the marketplace and he finds death there. And he says, why did you stare, why did you stare at my servant uh, so much that he was so startled? He ran away somewhere. And death says, no, I wasn't as much trying to stare at him or scare him as much as I was surprised myself. Because tonight I've got an appointment with him in Samara. <laughs> no matter where you try to run away, you and I cannot run away from our death. When it's time. The Bible says. It is appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Will you be ready. When the time comes. Will I be ready. When the time comes. The point is many Christians aren't. But if you're a believer in Christ. You should be ready to die at any moment. Because death opens for us. A, a time of Eternity, And that is the promise that is given to every believer. Heaven is the promise that is given to every believer. My point is, are you ready for eternity? 
Are you ready for eternity? So, so far, two things we've learned from Solomon about what we need to understand to rest in God's perfect timing. Firstly, God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. God rules over time and orders everything that happens in time. Secondly, God has put eternity in man's heart, yet man cannot understand all of it. Then there's a third and final thing that uh, we need to understand, and that is in verses 12 through 15. They say that man's response should be to enjoy the fruit of his labor and fear God. Man's response should be to enjoy the fruit of his labor and fear God. You must appreciate your livelihood and be in awe of God. I must appreciate my livelihood and be in awe of God. And to explain this, Solomon has two quick things. Let's go one by one and I'll be through. Firstly, man should enjoy life by cheerfully accepting it as a gift from God. Look at verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Man is unable to find satisfaction in eternity because he is unable to understand what eternity is. Therefore, he resigns himself to the simple present pleasures of life. He resigns himself to the simple present pleasures of life. And the problem is that even these simple present pleasures of life are given by God himself. Man does not make them up on his own. Even these present pleasures are given by God himself. Man cannot in and of himself even enjoy the simple pleasures of this life. Today is the gift of God. And he didn't give it to you to sob and to distress about future and to keep thinking that there will be some day that will be better. No, today is that someday. Enjoy today. Enjoy life today. Enjoy your livelihood today. What's come along is just what God wants you to have and just what God wants you to have today. Don't wait for life. Live life. I ought not to wait for life to come. I ought to live life here as a Christian. So the point is this. Don't choke down the curd rice thinking about biryani. Enjoy your curd rice. We can get biryani some other day, but that's fine. But today when you're eating curd rice, don't choke it down. Enjoy it. We must enjoy life as Christians. So here the point is the preacher simply does not say it's not wrong to enjoy life. He says there's nothing better. There's nothing better than to enjoy life. Man should enjoy life by cheerfully accepting it as a gift from God. Lastly, Solomon says, man should fear God as his actions demonstrate permanence, effectiveness, and stability. Look at verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, not, uh, nor anything can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been and God seeks what has been driven away. God is in charge of everything, is the point that Solomon is making here. Birth and death, laughing and weeping, war and peace, nothing happens under the sun without his consent. This is what the preacher has found, and that's what the Bible confirms in every single page. The Bible does not begin with the words, in the beginning, God collaborated. It begins by saying, in the beginning, God commanded. 
He is in control of everything. He has been and he ever will be. And he has not given up his sovereignty. He will never give up his sovereignty. He is the Lord of angels and demons. He is in control of the heavens and the earth. He is in control of your life. He is in control of my life as well. And hear me please. I believe there's a distinction between creation and providence. A little bit of theology. I believe there's a distinction between creation and providence. Which means there's a difference between what God did and what God is doing right now. But when you think about it theologically, there's a close connection between creation and providence. The creation began by the word of God and is being sustained by the very word of God. It is the word of God that began creation. It is the word of God that sustains creation as well. Then things would go into pieces if it weren't for him. And without him, there would be no pieces as well. And that's why God controls everything. He is in control of the whole world, even your life and mine. But setting that aside, Solomon wants to explore why God tells us he controls everything. And Solomon says that God has done it so that people fear him. Here is the point. God is telling us that he controls everything so that we fear him. So that we fall down in worship, in awe of who he is. Not simply have knowledge about it, but we fall down in worship, in awe of who he is. By believing his word and becoming thankful and eager servants of his. Man's response should be to enjoy the fruit of his labor and to fear God. You know, as Christians, we must make good use of our time. I've never given an application like this, but I think it's, it's an apt thing here uh, when you look at what Solomon is talking about. To use a memorable phrase from the writings of Paul, we must redeem our time. We must redeem the time. As far as, as far as Solomon was concerned, the best way to be redeeming our time is to be using it in God-honoring ways. It is to be using it in God-honoring ways. And that's why in verses 12 and 13 he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful than to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You know, it's not easy for us to use our time wisely. In this time-bound universe where we are caught between time and eternity, the moments of our days are our most precious commodity. Time is the priceless currency that God gives us for doing the work of his kingdom. Time also happens to be one of the most difficult things to manage. We all have the same amount of time on a daily basis, all 24 hours. But the question is, how will we spend it? Or will we waste it? You know, I think the best way to use our time is to glorify God and use it for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. This always requires deep spiritual wisdom. Now, we have decisions to make every day. There are times when life needs to start or something important that needs to start in life. But we need also wisdom to think about things in life that have to end as well and end them at the right time. So that requires wisdom, much spiritual wisdom, not just about starting projects, but also when to stop a ministry, when to stop a project, when to stop doing certain things. And for us to know when the right time is, we have to be in tune with God. 
we have to unashamedly go back to God, asking him when the right time is. That's how you and I can live as Christians, redeeming our time. And one day, very soon, Jesus Christ will come back, and time will give rise to eternity. But until then, we must be praying with Moses, saying, teach us to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says that the best response to our ignorance of God's timing and his great purposes is to rejoice in our labor and to fear God. Very simply put, enjoy life and worship him. Enjoy life as Christians and worship him with reverence. Let me bring this all to a close with an illustration from church history. In about 156 AD, there was an 86-year-old man who was brought before a Roman official. And uh, in those days, if you were a Christian or if you belong to any religion other than the emperor worship, the cultic emperor worship of Romans or Roman deities, you were called an atheist. So Christians were atheists according to Roman officials who used to execute them. So he, this man... Uh, Polycarp, his name was Polycarp of Smyrna, he was called and the Roman official asked him the question, would you denounce your atheism? Would you denounce Christ? And the, the choice that was given to him was that you will either be thrown into the arena with wild animals or you'll be burnt uh, with a painful death on a pyre. Three times he was questioned. He was asked to renounce his atheism, but the answer that he gave was this. 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was not spared. He was burnt on a pyre, but his words ring through history, and I remember these words often. 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong, no harm. How then can I blaspheme my king? Thank you so much for your patience. May God bless you all. And let's close in prayer. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your word that came through the writings of Solomon. From centuries ago, Lord, and yet they speak to our need today. They speak to our situation today, our circumstances today. Thank you for speaking to us that we must rest in God's perfect timing, in your perfect timing. Because you're in control of everything. You're in control of time and everything that happens in time. Every activity that happens in time. Although we like to think that we're in control of it. Or we could be controlling it. Or we have the control over it. It's very clear from your word that that is not reality. It is you who controls time. And we have to be content with whatever season is given by you into our lives. Thank you for this, O Lord. This is a tough teaching from your word. But we pray, O Lord, that you would give us the grace and the enablement to implement these in our lives and look forward to your coming by enjoying life as Christians and revering you and worshiping you as well. We submit the rest of the activities of today into your hands, even um, the men's meeting and the Hindi fellowship later this evening as well, O Lord, and even our time of fellowship today. We pray, O Lord, that everything would be done to the honor and the glory of the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask. Amen.